Okay, God's word, John 13, 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. He said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then turn to John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, Lord, and we worship you on this Good Friday. And Lord Jesus, truly, it will take all eternity for us to grasp and understand what you did for us. The level of humiliation, the level of sacrifice, the level of suffering that you endured for us. And Lord Jesus, tonight as we look at this picture of you washing the disciples' feet, that is just a glimpse of what was to come, the greater picture of you on the cross. And so Lord God, help us to understand what you did and let us not only understand, but let it penetrate our hearts even just a little bit more tonight so that we would be just a little bit more changed and so that we would see a new community being formed here, one based on your love, one based on your love pouring through us to one another. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this Good Friday service. And I can see that things are changing year by year. Uh, the reason why I say that is because two years ago, I remember Good Friday very vividly. I spent it with just a few guys <laughs> in the loft, and we were live streaming because nobody was allowed to come to church. And so I just spent Good Friday service with a few guys, and I had a good time uh, preaching, and most of all of you were at home, comfortable and then the following year, last year, I remember we moved to the parking lot. And so now we were outdoors worshiping and more of you were able to come, but not most of you because most of you were not able to come yet. And I remember having a good time then. And then today, look at this, we're back in our normal facility and more of you are here. So praise God. So I can see the things that God is doing. God has been so faithful. He is leading our church. I am very expectant to see what God is going to do as we look ahead to the future and so it's great. It's great to be here worshiping God.
And so what we're going to do today is we're going to be remembering what Jesus has done for us. We're going to look at Jesus' incredible love for us. And in particular, I want to look at one impact that the cross has had upon our lives and hopefully will continue to have upon our lives. Now, when Jesus came and died upon the cross and then rose again, there have been many unimaginable impacts upon the world, upon our lives. Too many things to even count today. But let me just mention a few. But for example, on the cross, Jesus satisfied God's wrath against our sin. So that was one kind of impact. The Bible says everyone who sins will die. And yet Jesus took away that death sentence by dying in our place. So if you grew up in the church, you know that. That's the gospel. So that's one impact. On the cross, Jesus also brought peace between us and God. So here's another impact. Since God's wrath was upon us and upon our sin, we could not have a relationship with God. In fact, we were enemies of God. We were rebels against God. And yet when Jesus died and took away that penalty, all of that wrath was satisfied. So here's what can happen now. God can draw near to us, and we can draw near to God. So God brought peace. Jesus brought peace between us and God. That's another impact. Here's another impact. On the cross, Jesus crushed the enemy. Amen? He crushed the enemy. The Bible prophesied that would happen way back in Genesis 3. Ages and ages before it actually happened. But God told Satan, Satan, he referring to the Messiah, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. And just as God said many, many thousands of years later, that's exactly what happened on the cross. Satan hurt Jesus on the cross. Yes, that happened. Satan hurt Jesus on the cross. But guess what? Jesus crushed Satan through the cross. Amen? So he crushed Satan. What I mean by that is on the cross, everything Satan had to accuse us, which is basically our sin. Everything Satan could use against us, Jesus took away by dying in our place. So now, for everybody who puts their trust in the cross, that dragon, that old dragon, has no more teeth, no more claws. In other words, he can't hurt us. So that's another impact of the cross. Here's one more. Let me just mention one more. But on the cross, Jesus also flipped the world order upside down. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, before the cross, people saw the world in a certain way. There's a certain way that the world functioned, right? What I mean is, before the cross, power was greater than weakness. And even today, people who don't know the cross, who don't believe in the cross, this is true. Power is greater than weakness. Wisdom is greater than foolishness. Wealth is greater than poverty. Being served is greater than serving others. I know, that's true. That's a sign of greatness. I used to like MC Hammer. Don't hold that against me. But I heard heard at one point, at the height of his career, he had like a thousand people (laughs) as part of his entourage. They couldn't even all come with him, only a few hundred at a time. But that was a sign of his greatness, that he had this many people that he paid to just be around him. MC Hammer, great man. But that was a sign of his greatness. How many people are serving me? And yet now, after the cross, all of that is flipped on his head. Because of the cross now, weakness is what? Greater than power. Foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. 
Okay, being poor in God, not that there's anything virtuous necessarily in being poor, but being poor in God is greater than being rich in the world. Serving others is greater than being served. MC Hammer, I think he's a pastor actually. He should know that. But being served is not as great as serving others. So see, the cross flipped everything upside down. So that's another impact that the cross has had. It's completely changed the world. In fact, it's completely changed the world so drastically, especially here in the West. I've said this many times. We don't even realize it. It's kind of like fish in water. We don't even realize the world we live in. People just walk around going, isn't this the way things always are? Right? Grace, charity, we got to love each other. Isn't that just how the world always was? No, not by a long shot. You know, I like quoting Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but the British historian. He's a world-class historian who's also not a Christian, but listen to what he said. Christianity is the most transformative and revolutionary ideology that has ever existed, and in its distinctively Western form, it continues to completely saturate the way people in the West view the world, not just morally and ethically, but on issues as fundamental as things they take for granted, such as how sexuality operates, relations between men and women, how society is structured, in the nature of progress. Holland is basically saying it has completely changed the world so drastically we just take it for granted. So that's a big statement. And what's at the heart of that transformative revolution? What, what is at the heart of that change that brought, that came upon the world? It's the cross, right? It's the cross. So what am I talking about? These are just some impacts that the cross has had on our lives and upon the world. Well, tonight, I just want to look at one particular impact of the cross. Okay, it's a very specific kind. But it's an impact that we might not think about often, but it's very important. And here it is. It's how the cross shapes community. And this is kind of in line with our theme this year of being the church. But how the cross shapes community. The cross also shapes community. It's not just you by yourself or even the society at large, but right here, the community we have, the cross impacts it. In fact, this should be a cross community. That's the title of the message, but the cross community. And so when Jesus came and died and rose again, he left behind a brand new community. Even as Jesus was razor focused on going to the cross, because as you begin to read through the gospels, every single one, in the second half of every gospel, he gets razor focused on going to the cross. But even as he's focused on that, you know what else he's thinking about? Community, the radical new community that he's going to produce through the cross. And we know that Jesus was thinking about this the night before he went to the cross. Because look at John 13, 34 and 35. This is what Jesus was thinking about. A new commandment I give to you, my followers, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus, even as he's razor focused on going to the cross, I mean, he's hours away from being tortured he brutalized, whipped, and then nailed to a cross. He's thinking about community. He threw the cross. I'm going to produce a brand new community that you're going to be a part of. And not only you, but every single person who believes in me, you're going to be a part of this community. It's going to be radical. It's going to be transformative. And so he said, this command to love one another. Okay, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. What is that? That's a command for community. He's commanding us to have a certain kind of community. A radical new kind of community. And so Jesus gave this command about community immediately after washing 
the disciples' feet. So they're connected. He, Jesus just washed their feet, and then now he gave this command to be in community, love one another. These things are connected. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Okay, when he said, just as I have loved you, what is he talking about? Well, he could be talking about kind of generally for the last three years because he spent three years with them, right? So kind of generically, generally for the last three years, just as I have loved you, love one another. That could be true. I think that's included. But I think Jesus was referring more specifically to the feet washing because that's the context. He just did it. He's probably referring specifically to washing their feet. Just as I have loved you in washing your feet. Everything that you experienced about my love as I wash your feet, now love one another. Does that make sense? They're connected. So there's something about the feet washing that was above, right? That was more significant than all his other acts of love. I will say that again. There was something about the feet washing that was above, more important in showing his love than everything else he did. So right before Jesus washed their feet, it says in John 13, 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to, and go to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then he washed their feet. So that shows me that there's something important about the washing of the feet. He loved them to the end. And that word end in the Greek is telos. And it can simply mean the end, right? Kind of like the end of a movie. <laughs> when you get to the end of a movie, that's the telos. That's the end. Or the end of Jesus' life. But here, I think it means something a little different. I think it means, and not me, but Bible scholars who really know Greek, who really know what they're talking about. But they say that it means to the utmost, right? To the max. So it's not just the end of something, the end of Jesus' life. But he loved them to the max, to the utmost. And then he washed their feet. So there's something very important about this, this act. So I think that's what it means here in verse 1. John is saying, on the night before going to the cross, Jesus loved them to the max, to the very utmost. And then he washed their feet. But why would washing the disciples' feet, their smelly, stinky feet, ungrateful feet, why would that be loving them to the max? Good question. Well, it's because the washing of the disciples' feet was a symbolic act representing something far greater. It was pointing to something bigger. It was a prophetic act. It was a sign act. What I mean by that, it, that act of washing their feet was a sign pointing to something much greater, much greater than it. So, for example, if you're driving through the mountains and you suddenly saw a sign, it said deer crossing. You know, have you seen those signs? Okay, not many here in Riverside or L.A., but occasionally if you go to the mountains, you'll see that sign, and you might see a little drawing of a deer on it. Well, it looks like a deer. It represents a deer, but that is not a deer, right? What is that sign doing? It's pointing to the real thing, a greater thing, which is a real deer crossing. So that's how the foot washing kind of is. It's a sign. Okay, It, it represents. It kind of looks like the greater thing is pointing to, but it's pointing to a greater thing. And so this act of the washing of the feet was an accurate picture of Jesus' love but it pointed to a much greater act of Jesus' love. Similar to the washing of the feet, but not the same thing. So what am I talking about? Okay, what are we talking about today? The cross, right? It's pointing to the cross. So that was the much greater act that the feet washing was pointing to. They're both similar, 
but one is pointing to the other. And so that's what this feet washing was all about. Jesus, hours before going to the cross, he loved them to the max by showing them a picture of what he was about to do on the cross. This is everything that you're experiencing right here. All the things that you're seeing me, the the way that I'm loving you right here, washing your feet, that is what I'm going to do hours from now in a much greater way on the cross. So actually, this is not today's message, but if you want to study what the cross really means, study the feet washing. If you want to really know how much Jesus loves you and what he did for you on the cross, study the feet washing. The feet washing is a sign pointing to the cross. So this is how they're connected. And now when you hear Jesus say, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. We know that Jesus wants us to love one another in the same way he washed the disciples' feet. But even more than that, we now know that he wants us to love one another in the same way he loved us when he died on the cross. Okay, I'm going to say that again. When he said, I'm giving you a new commandment, my followers, love one another just as I have loved you in the same way. What is he talking about? Love each other in the same way I love the disciples washing their feet. But even more than that, love each other in the same way that I loved you when I died on the cross. It's like, whoa, that is staggering. Yeah, I know. Okay, I've grown up in the church. I'm a Christian for maybe 30 plus years. I know we need to love others. Okay, I know that. Okay, I've heard it. Many, many messages. I got to love you guys. You, you guys need to love each other. You need to love me. We need to love each other. But I don't really think about it in this way, though. I got to love you in the way Jesus loved me on the cross? That's, that's different. Okay, I'll help you move. Okay, maybe. <laughs> okay, I don't, I don't know. Sometimes I hesitate to buy a truck because I know the moment I buy a truck, people are going to call me and text me, hey, can you help me move? I will. God will love people by helping them move. But love them the way Jesus loved us on the cross? Okay, that's a whole other thing. But this is what Jesus is saying. I want you to love one another in the same way I loved you on the cross. So that is staggering, and it actually is bigger than even today's message. I mean, you can study this for the rest of your life. But how in the world can we love one another in the same way Jesus loved us upon the cross? How do we do that? Well, as soon as we begin to learn how to do that, we are going to have a new community that Jesus is forming through the cross. There's going to be a radical new community that he is going to begin to form, that you're going to be a part of, that you're going to be blessed by. And I don't need to go through all the sad uh, statistics these days, but you know how people are just dying for community. I think recently I even shared how there is a epidemic or pandemic of loneliness. I heard that there is a higher percentage of people in a family of one. These are people who live all alone than ever before in the history of the world. Right now, more people live all alone, family of one, than at any other point in history. I even saw this one um, video on YouTube, and I think it's turning into a Netflix show. But have you guys heard about this Japanese man? He's 37 years old, and he has made tons of money. He's going to even get his own Netflix show. And all he does is he rents himself out to do nothing. Have you guys heard of this guy? He's the do-nothing man. But people in Japan, and supposedly he's been rented out 30,000 times. Only like 30-minute segments. I heard majority of them are middle-aged women. No shame in that. <laughs> but, this, but this young man goes and he just sits at a park and does nothing. And he even makes a requirement. Minimum talk, please. And don't make me do anything. Okay, I don't even want to eat. 
I just come, I show up, and I do nothing. But I will sit next to you. And he's been rented out 30,000 times. So this is the society we live in. We are dying for community. And look at what Jesus did. He died to give us this community. He died to give us a community like no other. And so what I want to look at today is I want to look at two ways that the cross forms a radical new community. And here are the two ways that it does it. The cross, first, overcomes the barriers to community because there are barriers. And the barrier is not good. The barrier is you. The barrier is me. But the cross overcomes the barrier of us. And then second, the cross provides the necessary ingredients to community. If you want true community, you will only get what you need through the cross. So I want to look at these two things. So first, the cross overcomes the old barriers to community. The old barriers to community. In John 13, we see two characters who clearly show us the greatest barrier to community. And I'll mention them more a little later. But it's Peter and Judas. It's interesting how through the Gospel of John, Peter and Judas are constantly compared to one another. That continuously happens. But here in this chapter as well, you see both of them being compared, but they're very similar. They're very similar. And what you see is the self being exerted, the old self. This is the barrier to community, but it wasn't just them, but you see it with all the disciples. But it is the old self being exerted. This is the part of us without Christ, which the Bible calls the flesh. Old nature, old self, flesh, they're all the same thing. This is the part of us without Jesus. A.W. Pink, he said, the flesh in the believer is no different from the flesh in the unbeliever. The flesh in you and in me is no different than the flesh in a non-Christian. And when allowed its way, it issues in the same works in both. In other words, it does the same thing in both people. So what this means is when we are in the flesh, we are no different from an unbeliever. You are just an unbeliever when you're in your flesh. I am a non-believer. That's how I'm living. That's how I'm thinking. So this is our old nature. This is our flesh. And the flesh is never at rest. But the flesh continuously sows and produces more flesh. Sometimes we don't think about that. We just think, oh, yeah, it's just kind of there. I know it's there. One day it will be gone in heaven. And we just kind of live with it like a roommate or like a pet dog. But the flesh, the Bible says, is never at rest. It continuously sows and produces more flesh. Galatians 6, 8, the mind of the flesh sows to the flesh. In other words, my grandma. Uh, not grandmother, my mother-in-law, she's an amazing gardener. I always say that to my wife, and she goes, she's okay. <laughs> but she can grow anything in my eyes, and she'll go out there and plant seeds, and she's sowing, right? She's sowing. Well, that's what the mind of the flesh is doing. It keeps sowing to the flesh, and it's stirring up more flesh, which ends in destruction. Galatians 6, 8, it ends in destruction. So what that means is the flesh will always think certain things. It will say certain things, do certain things that do what? It stirs up more flesh. Your flesh will always stir up more flesh. It will never be at rest. So, for example, if you're dead set on having people's respect, this is what you're all about. This is what you worship. This is what you build your identity on. You know you are respected. You want people's respect. Then you will do certain things and you will say certain things to try to earn more respect. See, the flesh always sows to more flesh. So what am I talking about? Well, lying, such as lying to always make yourself look good, even little lies here and there to always lift yourself up or subtly tearing people down with your words. You know people like that. Maybe you've done this, but 
People are just talking to you innocently, and then you go, oh, yeah, well, you're like, in, 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 and you tell, tear people down. You're always subtly doing that. Why? To feel superior. And so what is that? That is all the mind of the flesh sowing more flesh and stirring up flesh. So the flesh is never at rest. The mind of the flesh sows the flesh, results in more flesh. So this is a problem, brothers and sisters. See, it's not just like, again, the flesh is not like a pet dog that you're living with. Okay, it stinks a little bit, but I don't know what to do with it. It's just there. It'll be gone in heaven. No, it is causing havoc in your life. It is wreaking havoc. And so this is the flesh. You could say the flesh is simply selfishness. Okay, that would be kind of the worldly way to say it. It's just selfishness. Luther defined it like that. He defines sin as curving in on yourself. I think there was a Latin term for it. I forget it right now. Incarvitus, I think. But it's a curving in on yourself. The picture I get is one of those long Sithar swords, you know, those long curved swords. Well, imagine a sword, an extremely sharp sword that is more curved than normal. And so the moment you try to pick it up and wield it, you are cutting yourself and you're cutting people around you. But that is the flesh. That is sinfulness. That is selfishness. It is curving in on yourself like a sharp sword. And so now when you turn to Peter and the disciples, it's very clear. This is what you see. But it's so interesting how when Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, loving them to the max, the disciples, they didn't know what was going on, but they were doing many other things to the max. And we're often like that. We come to church and Jesus is speaking and, and he's ministering to us. His Holy Spirit is with us and he is loving us to the max while we're doing other things to the max. And so what did the disciples do? Well, Judas was about to betray Jesus. He was selfishly desiring money and the world to the utmost. And so it says in John 13 too, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, he began to move in that direction. So as Jesus was loving him to the max, Judas was doing something else to the max, being selfish. The other disciples earlier selfishly desired greatness and power. In the same story, this is the same story in the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us that something happened right before Jesus washed the disciples' feet. John left it out, but Luke included it. So what were they doing right before Jesus washed their feet? It says in Luke twenty-two twenty-four, 24, a fight arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Who's greatest? Who's taller? Who's smarter? Who's better looking? Who's closer to Jesus? Who's more spiritual? They were fighting. And so while Jesus was loving them to the max, the disciples were loving a lot of other things. This is all this curving in on yourself, right? This is the selfishness. And so really what they were all doing was loving themselves. Okay, they were loving themselves. Deep down, they had this selfish desire. And this is normal human behavior. Okay, this is all of us. And these selfish desires deep down define who we really are. Okay, this is the true self. Okay, this is what hinders us from having real community. Okay, have you guys known people who literally go from church to church to church? I, I have known people who have literally been to like 12 different churches. And every single church they go to, inevitably, within a few months, something happens, there's a problem, they're not feeling it, and then they move on, and then they move on, and they move on. And, and what is going on? Well, there were some genuine things that they were dealing with, but ultimately, you look at their story, and it's like, I don't know, I think the problem might be in you. And I say that without any criticism, it's just a fact. I think, I think it's in you. And it's not just you, it's in me. 
And so this is the reason why we can't find community. It's always out of reach, just out of reach, right? Oh, it would be so great to have community where I am loved. I want to be known and loved, and I want to maybe love others a little too. And, and I would love that kind of community, yet it always seems just a little out of reach. Why? Because of this curving in on ourselves. This is who we really are, brothers and sisters. We are all curved in on ourselves. Augustine, he said, we are what we love. See, that is the deepest part of who you are. That is your true self. So more than what you say, more than what you act, how you act, okay, all those things can be faked, and we know that. But the real you, the real me, is what we love deep, deep down. Okay, what is buried deep in our hearts. Usually, most people don't know what that is. Maybe your spouse, but most people don't know. But that is the real you. That is the real me. And you can never fake that. I remember one time I was uh, sitting at a graduation ceremony. It was my own, actually. <laughs> it was for seminary. And I was sitting there, and the guest speaker came up. No, no, no. I don't think it was mine. It was, whose was it? Was it mine? It might have been mine. <laughs> but I was sitting there, and this guest speaker came up, and I was excited to hear what he had to say. He was from some big organization. He opened up the Bible, read a passage, and then once he started talking, we all started getting uncomfortable because he only talked about himself. And then he talked about himself. And then he talked about himself. And then he talked about himself some more. And the whole time, it was just about how great of a person he is and how much God is doing through his life. And he just kept talking about himself almost to the point where everybody knew what was in his heart. Everybody on stage knew. Everybody in the audience knew. You can't hide that very long. Okay, that is what is in his heart. Okay, that is the real him. What you love the most is the real you. And this man evidently loved himself. He loved being the best. And so we are what we love. We are the same thing as our selfish love. So for example, if you love yourself and you love people saying great things about you all the time, then that's who you really are. It doesn't matter how much Bible you know, how much you come to church and appear to be a great Christian, that's the real you. That is who you really are. That is what you care about the most. If you love pleasure and comfort above anything else, at the drop of a hat, you will just forget about God and pursue that pleasure. And if that is what you love the most, deep down in your heart, that is you. That is you. And that is what God sees all the time. That's you. That's me. If you love money more than people around you, if you literally love material money and material possessions more than people around you, then that is who you are. That is who I am. It doesn't matter how much of a caring person you appear to be, how much time you appear to spend with others, that is who you really are. If you love your children more than anything else, even at the cost of other more important relationships, things that you are doing for God, then that's who you really are. You get the picture. If you love God, and then there are people who love God more than anything else. In the bottom of their hearts, even if they look like they mess up, they are not the best people that you know, and yet in their hearts, if they love the Lord more than anything else, even as messed up as they are, then that is who they really are. So it doesn't matter who you say you are or what you do, but it's what you desire most that determines who you are. And so that's very clear. And what we all desire most is ourselves. See, this is the hindrance to community. And these things are powerful. They direct the course of our lives. When left to our own, if there was no Jesus Christ and his influence in our lives, we will always go in the direction of our desires. Always. Always. Okay, there, there's no mystery about it. If there is no other outside influence, you are going in the direction of your desire every single time. That's where you're headed. That's what you're pursuing. That's what you're going to be all about, what you desire in your heart, which will always be ultimately about 
something that you want, something to lift yourself up. And so going back to that old order I mentioned, this is the old order. This is always what will take place. This is the world. This is even in the church. I liked what this one commentator said, but when you look at Judas, I mean, yes, the disciples all had this, but when you look at Judas, the enemy is in the church and at work and at large. And how is he working? Through these desires. So even within the church, as a pastor, I have no naivete about that. Yeah, I've been around a little bit too long. I have the gray hairs. But I know that in the church, the enemy is at work. How is he working through these desires? James 1, 13, 14, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. No one should say that. But each one is tempted when he or she is dragged away and enticed by his own evil desire. Why? Because that's the direction our lives always go. That's the real us. That's who we really are. And so why am I taking so much time on this? This is what makes community impossible. This is what makes the community Jesus envisioned impossible. You know, this is a very old illustration. I think it's a little bit cliched even, but it really gets the point across. You might have heard it. But there's this picture of community of sitting around a large dining table. Imagine the most beautiful banquet hall, this enormous dining table that seats about 100 people all around, the most lavish food laid out. And yet everybody with the meal in front of them is starving. And the reason why is because they have these incredibly long spoons. Have you guys heard this? But there are two different results to this picture of community. One picture is in hell, everyone is trying to feed themselves with these incredibly long spoons, but they can't. But it's that picture of being curved in on yourself. They have no thought outside of themselves. They just want to feed themselves this amazing food. And yet they can't, right? They can't satisfy themselves. So they continually try to feed themselves. And it gets to the point where they forget about everyone around them. And they forget about the entire joyous occasion. They, they can't even enjoy what is in front of them. They are so curved in on themselves. But another result is in heaven, if you were to go there and saw the scene, everyone is feeding each other, right? Again, it's an old picture, a little cliche, but it's powerful. Everyone takes that extremely long spoon and is feeding each other. And so now they're even more connected. They're serving one another. Right? Rather than being curved in, they're able to break, break out. And so they're feeding one another, connecting with one another, enjoying one another. This is the picture of the community that Jesus envisions. But again, it only comes if we can break out of this barrier, right? This intense barrier, this selfishness that we all have, the real us. So this is what we see. And it's not only that, but when you look at Peter in John 13, you see this selfishness take this other form. So it's not only merely selfish desires, but it, the selfishness also appears through this kind of self-justification. But this need to always validate ourselves and to lift ourselves up in order to meet some kind of standard. But you see that clearly here as well. But in Peter, his testimony, it says here, when Jesus... After pouring out water into the basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel wrapped around his body. And then verse 6, when he came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then Jesus answered, what I'm doing to you, you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. And then Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. No part of me. And then Peter said, well, in that case, give me a bath, right? So what is going on here? It kind of looks like Peter is a very, very, like, naive, kind of almost childlike person. It almost seems kind of innocent, but no, that's not true. Okay, I liked what this one commentator said, this Bible scholar, very insightful. Even though it looks a little bit innocent here, 
But Peter is actually operating very much in the old order, very much in the flesh. And what is it? See, Peter, he did not want Jesus to wash his feet. Why? Because this is a reversal of the old order. No, this is not right. Masters don't serve the servants. No. Teachers don't serve the students. No. We got to keep this order straight, Jesus. No. No. You will never wash my feet. What is he saying? You're reversing the order. No. So this is the flesh, right? This is the old order of the flesh. What is that order? Power is always greater than weakness. Status is always greater than low status. No, you're not going to reverse it. And why did Peter care so much about keeping that order? Because if Jesus kept the order, then he has every right to keep that old order, and then he could push people below him down. Right? He's top dog here. No, no, we got to keep this order, Jesus. You're above me. I'm number two. (laughs) And then everybody else is below me. So I could keep that order going. And so he needed to maintain that. See, that's his flesh. So he was not being innocent at all. This is very much that same selfishness being exerted to a gross level. I think this is gross. And yet Jesus has so much patience and love. But this is that old order, that old self-fleshly order. No, Jesus, no, no, you're reversing it. No, no, we got to keep this. You're, you're on top, I'm below you, and then everybody else is below me. We got to keep that going. And so what is that? That is a need to justify yourself. And again, I, I know you've heard this before, but this is normal human behavior. This is in all of us. How many of you guys have ever like sat at a table having lunch with somebody and then they mention something about their child and you have a child and immediately you have this desire to talk about your child? What is that? Well, it's just it's this order. We got to keep this order going, right? We got to keep this order going. No, no. I, I gotta I gotta remind you that my child has actually a little bit more status, a little bit more talent, a little bit more going for their their lives than yours. I, I just gotta remind you. Right? Somebody mentions something great that happened to them. Immediately, you feel this little like, oh, yeah, I'm happy, but you're kind of not happy. What, what is that? Well, it's just a reference to how you're not being justified. Well, you're being justified. I'm not being justified. What is that? It's that old order again. Again, it's just natural. It's just natural. You don't even have to think about it. That is just who you are. That is who I am. All of this is a barrier to community. This is what cuts us off from community. Again, look at the disciples, how they were minutes before the washing of the feet. They were what? Arguing who's better looking, who's more powerful, who's closer to Jesus, who's greater. They're just arguing, trying to justify themselves. So again, these are all the barriers that hinder community. And then what did Jesus do? He quietly got up from dinner, and then he reversed the order. How? By beginning to wash their feet, which was what? a small picture of the much greater picture that was about to come of him doing the ultimate washing of everyone's feet on the cross. Jesus completely obliterated that old order. So here, now we come to our second point. The cross provides new ingredients for community. There's a whole new resource now for community. A whole new set of ingredients for community. And I just mentioned the first one. But by the cross, Jesus subverted the old order of the flesh and of the world. He completely slammed into it and flipped it on his head. Imagine a car slamming or a truck slamming into a car and flipping that car over. Jesus is a truck. The car is that old order of the world and the flesh. He completely slammed it and flipped it on his head. It says here, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing to you, you don't understand. Of course he can't understand. 
This is a complete different order. Peter, you're still stuck in the old order. You don't understand what I'm doing. But afterward, you will. After what? After you see me die on the cross. You'll get it later. Peter, still not getting it, said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You got to keep that order, Jesus. Because I care about that order. And then Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only then, but my hands and my head as well. That's just another form of him trying to justify himself. And Jesus, being gracious and loving, continued. And he kept pushing the subversion of that old order. Leslie Newbegin, he's a great uh, world-class missionary and Bible scholar. He wrote an amazing commentary on the Gospel of John. Read it. It's like a devotional book. It's not even like a commentary. I read commentaries all the time, and this is more like a devotional book. It's called uh, When the Light When the Light Has Come. You know what? I should get the title right. <laughs> the Light Has Come. It's called The Light Has Come. It's right here. The Light Has Come. But in this book, Newbegin, he said, the foot washing is a sign of that ultimate subversion of all human power and authority which took place when Jesus was crucified by the decisions of the powers that rule this present age. Did you hear that? The feet washing was a sign of the ultimate subversion of the world powers, which was what? Him dying on the cross. So it began with the foot washing, it climaxed on the cross. And the new begin a little bit later, he makes this very important insight. But Jesus really pushed on this new order. And the way he did it is after he finished washing the disciples' feet, okay, take notice of this. He didn't say, okay, I wash your feet, now come wash my feet. Jesus did not say that. Okay, this is very insightful, what New Begin posts out. Jesus did not say, I wash your feet, now come wash my feet. Why didn't he say that? Because that will perpetuate the same old order. What does that mean? Disciples say, oh yeah, I'm going to be the first in line then. I'm going to wash Jesus' feet better than anyone else. Okay, you watch me. I'm going to wash his feet so good, he's going to love me like twice as much. Right? That's going to just perpetuate that same old order. So in order to just slam once and for all the old order on his head, and then now push this new order of the weak on top, right? The people who have nothing on top. Those who are not wise in the world's eyes on top. But what did he do? Instead of saying, okay, I washed all your feet, now wash my feet, he said, wait. I washed your feet, now you wash one another's feet. Peter's like, what? Jesus, I want to wash your feet. I don't want to wash Andrew's feet. <laughs> Andrew's my little brother. Okay, he's dumb. God, I don't want to wash his feet. Okay, he just follows along and does whatever I tell him. I don't want to wash his feet. Jesus says, no, I wash your feet. Now you wash one another's feet. Do you see that? Jesus is pressing in that old order. No, I'm not going to let you get out of this. I know what you want to do. You want to wash my feet now. No, you wash one another's feet. You go to the lowliest person the person that you care the least about, the person you wouldn't give time of day, and we all have people like that. That's how ugly we all are. Okay, I, I, I say that in love, but we are ugly in our hearts. There are all, we all have people in our lives we would not give them time of day. Jesus says, I want you to wash that person's foot. You go wash that person's feet. That is the kind of subverted new order I'm bringing. So Jesus, he was relentless. He pushed on this. He pushed on this. And so ultimately... It's not just about the feet washing, but it's the cross. Remember, the feet washing points to the cross. Ultimately, the cross is the subversion of the world order, the old order of our flesh. The, the cross is what completely flipped it once and for all. 
Okay, what do I mean by that? The cross, and this is what the Bible says, the cross, do you know what it symbolized? The cross ultimately symbolizes death to self. That is the ultimate subversion of that old order. The cross is death to self. This past Wednesday during the prayer meeting, we had a good discussion on that. But that is what the cross means. The cross is not like a spouse who is annoying or you getting a little cold right before your finals. Okay, that is not the cross. The cross is nothing less than you dying, yourself dying. When I say self, I mean the old self, the old nature. John Stott said, our cross is not an irritable husband or a contagious wife. It is instead the symbol of death to the self. C.E.B. Cranefield, another Bible scholar, said, to deny oneself is to turn away from the idolatry of self-centeredness. And that's what the cross is. It is you putting to death that idol of the self. I, I just, but I just love me, though. <laughs> Remember that curving in on yourself? I, but, but I just care about me. Well, the cross says, well, you're not going to care anymore. You're going to let God care for you, and he'll do a better job, but you're not going to care anymore. It is a death to self. But it doesn't end there. But the cross makes alive a new self. And so we're going to come to a close with this. But it's not just a death to your old self. It is a aliving, enlivening of the new self. But I love that. But the cross doesn't just tell you how much God hates your sin, but the cross at the very same time tells you how much God loves your soul. Right? It's the same thing. It's a very complicated picture. It's both. It shows God's utter hatred for one part of you, but his utter love for another part of you, the real part of you. You know, I love this story, but this, I think he was a pastor, a minister, but, but he um, wrote a book, and in that book, he talked about this hymn called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And it's a magnificent and amazing hymn, but there's one part of the hymn that he really didn't like. But towards the end of that hymn, it goes like this. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonder of his glorious love and my own worthlessness. And when this Bible scholar or pastor heard that, he, he wrote, no, 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 right? He objected. And he said, we can't sing that. My worthlessness? No, he said, we should rather sing my unworthiness. We are unworthy, but we are never worthless. Never. And he's right. But he said, how can we declare worthless what Jesus Christ has declared of value? Is it worthless to be a child of God, a member of Christ, and an heir of the kingdom of heaven? You are not worthless. See, the cross shows you how much God hates a part of you, the sin in you. Yes, that is the real you. But at the same time, it shows you of how much value you are to God, that Jesus would go through that for you. So never worthlessness is unworthiness, but never worthlessness. And so this is what the cross does. It gives us a new idea, a new picture of who we are. Yes, I am unworthy. But no, I am not worthless. I am of infinite worthy worth, I should say, or great worth to God. And so you can become a complete new person with a new identity. And this is another thing that the cross begins to give you that produces community, is you get a whole new identity. He makes your identity whole. So the cross not only subverts that old order, not only does it show you your worth in Christ, but it also gives you a whole new identity. 
a whole new identity. And this is very important if you're going to have community. You know, go back to uh, John 13, 1. But Jesus was able to produce this new community because he knew who he was. See, you can only give to people if you have something to give. But he knew who he was, John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then go to verse 3. I'm sorry. In verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper and took the basin. So do you see that? Jesus was only able to do this incredible act of love that produced community. Why? Because he knew who he was. He knew he came from God. He knew he was going back to God. He knew what God had given him. And so now he was able to give to all his disciples. So this is what God will do. He will make your identity whole. See, you can't give what you don't have, brothers and sisters. You know, this is the picture I get, but, you know, God bless this young man. But he was a college student. He came to my college group. I used to have a college ministry in L.A. And he came to one of our Bible studies. And I remember this young man was so shy. And his, his identity, his sense of who he was was so, like, shaky that during the introduction time when we went around in a circle, and I realized it could be scary sometimes. When it was his turn, he's like, uh, I'm so sorry, everyone, but do you mind if I turn around and face the wall and then share who I am? And we're like, yeah, go for it. That's okay. And then he literally turned around. And, and faced the wall, and he's like, hi, my name is Jimmy, and blah, blah, blah. And that wasn't his real name. And we're like, wow. <laughs> but he couldn't even face the group. And so that picture of turning around and facing the wall, okay, what is that? Okay, when you are not sure of yourself, of who you are in Christ, if your identity is shaky, then you are cut off from community. It's just like that young man. He's cut off from community. He's facing the other way. Here's another example, but I remember when we first came out to Riverside, we were doing some outreach with college students, and we went to the basketball courts. And I remember I was meeting some young freshmen. I think they were all freshmen, and I was, like, trying to make some talk and, like, hey, where are you guys from? And, you know, like, you know, what's your major? And I remember almost every single one of them, I don't know what was going on with them, but they all just kind of shuffled their feet and looked at the ground. They wouldn't even look at me, right? I was like, what's going on, you guys? <laughs> they wouldn't even look at me. They're all just looking at their feet. It's like, what is that? Well, it's just a bunch of awkward young guys who didn't know who they were. And so, again, what is that? You're cut off from community. Right? You're cut off. Whether you're facing the wall or staring at your feet, you're not able to connect with people. Why is that? It's because you don't have something to give. And that's not your fault, but, but that's just the condition of our souls. You don't have a firm identity. You are not full within, with an identity from God so that you can connect with people and give. See, you need to do that. That is like community 101. If you don't have that, there is no community, brothers and sisters. You can go from group to group to group to group, and you will never have community. You are always cut off, and then you wonder why. Why is everybody so cut off? And so here, Jesus, clearly, he knew who he was, and that's why he was able to produce this community. And not only that, but the cross will always give us the same. It will also give us the same. But the cross, like I said, not only shows us who we are in God, that we are utterly unworthy of his love because we are all sinners, and yet God loved us regardless. We are ultimately worthy in him. We are blessed. We are loved in him. Just even think about what he went through for you. You know, this past week, my mom uh, called me, which she occasionally does, and I told her, oh, I'm prepared for my sermon right now. 
And then she said, oh, okay, well, what are you going to talk about? Well, the crucifixion is <laughs> Good Friday. And so then my mom said, Roy, don't forget that Jesus endured a lot of shame. Don't forget that. And I said, oh, okay, interesting. But don't forget that. That's not just physical suffering, but he went through so much shame, so much shame for you. And I said, oh, okay, I won't forget that. And that's why I'm mentioning it right now. <laughs> but I don't, <laughs> so if my mom watches, I, I remembered. <laughs> but, but think about not just the suffering, but the shame that he went through. You know, Bible scholars, they say that when men and women were crucified in Roman times, did you know that they were naked? Completely naked. I know for modesty's sake, paintings, they put a little loincloth on Jesus. He had nothing. So, so imagine that. He was stripped naked, beaten, bloody, and nailed to a cross in front of not just strangers, his disciples. All the women who followed around and supported him. Would any of us do that to anybody here for the sake of anybody here? I don't think so. Be stripped and beaten and naked in front of the people who know you? Nobody here would do that. That's what Jesus did. Don't forget the shame he also went through. This is how much he loves. So your identity is in that. Amen? Your identity is in that. And so... This is what Jesus did. Again, that picture of the washing of the feet, it was a picture pointing to the greater picture of the cross. I like what, I think it's Newbegin again, but Newbegin, he said that when John said Jesus laid down his clothes, that's the same language that Jesus used about himself in John 10 when he said the shepherd lays down his life. It's the same language. So him laying down his clothes was a picture of him laying down his life. He took off his clothes, laid it down as a picture. In a few hours, I'm going to lay down my life, just like these clothes. I'm going to lay it down for you. And so this is the basis of all true community. And so ultimately, Jesus didn't come to destroy the self, but to recreate it. Okay, this is what he came to do. He came to create a whole new world order. He came to snuff out that selfishness. The picture I get is like a candle. And imagine the candle is not some fragrant thing, but it's like this toxic candle. And it's burning inside of us. And that flame of selfishness is always burning, right? And we can't put it out. It's one of those birthday candles that's very annoying. You always blow it out and keeps coming back, right? You can't blow it out. And because it's burning all the time, all the toxic fumes are always going out. And then finally, Jesus, because of that sacrifice, you know what happened? beautiful living water gets poured into that candle and it begins to rise and rise and it snuffs out this flame. For the first time, that selfishness inside, that flame, that toxic flame, snuffed out. Why? Because look at how much Jesus loves you. Look at what he did. And so this is the brand new order. This is the new self that he is recreating. So the cross, okay, the cross is everything. It creates a whole new identity, and that, not only that, but ultimately it creates a whole new set of behaviors. So I, I truly close with this. But you're going to begin to see in your own life a whole new way of living. This is where the new community begins to form. You know, I remember seeing this firsthand when the church first started. It was early on when the church started, but there was a brother. I won't name him. He's actually not even here anymore. But he is actually... Not well off. He was not well off. He worked a nine-to-five job. It wasn't a very well-paying job. And yet because the living water was in him, because it had risen and snuffed out that selfish flame, and it sometimes comes back, right, in all of us. But for the most part, it snuffed it out. 
this precious brother came to me one day and said, hey, Pastor Roy, you know, God convicted me that there are people in our church who are in more need than me. And so I actually want to give a gift card every single week. I will bring a gift card every Sunday from Stater Brothers or Food for Less or somewhere, and I want to just give it to you to give to people in the church. I said, are you sure? I said, okay. So then every single week, and I knew this was a lot for him, he started giving me gift cards every Sunday without fail. He'd be like, here, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's another one. I started getting a pile until finally I found some people to give it to. But then finally, after like several months, I remember it was about six months, eight months, I finally went to that brother and said, hey, brother, you know what? You can stop doing that. And then he went, oh, my gosh, thank you so much, because I told God that I will keep doing it until Pastor Roy tells me to stop. So thank you. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, what? Really? I should have told you to stop way, way, like way before, right? But he's like, thank you, because I promised God I would, I would keep doing it until he told me to stop. So I said, okay, yeah, you can stop. But he kept doing it. And I know he spent like hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars during that time. But why did he do it? Because that new order, right? It's the whole new order. The people who are even less below me in financial security, they're even higher than me. Okay, I, I want them higher than me. I want to lift them up. Okay, they, are, they are more important than me. And so he gave, he gave. And so this is what the cross does, okay? So, so this is how the community of God begins to form. It's beautiful, brothers and sisters. It's so beautiful. And so today we're coming to a close, but why don't we just come before the Lord and we're going to take communion together. But this is the kind of community that I desire here. Again, we're not going to reach the level of loving one another the way Jesus loved us on the cross. I mean, we're not going to even come close. But if we can even understand and begin to move in that direction, it'll be transforming, right? It'll be transforming. So let's just come before the Lord right now.